Hey everyone, this is Kevin Islin, and you are listening to another episode of Folk Stories. Folk Stories is a podcast where we have long form conversations with founders, innovators, and top performers. We talk about how they got here, what they do, and the stories that they have to share. Today, my guest is David Mays, Senior Public Relations Manager at Amazon. I actually worked with David while I was working at Amazon, but we never had a chance to do an extensive conversation like the one today. But as they say, better late than never. And I'm really glad that we got to sit down and talk because it turns out we have a lot in common beyond just working at the same company and having a pathological obsession with running long distances. Prior to Amazon, David has had an expansive career across multiple industries, including public news, the Department of Defense, oil, and healthcare. David's father was a Methodist minister, and David remembers moving frequently from small town to small town as a kid. He came across a group of gunners in one of these towns and insisted on joining them, which led to him running his first marathon at the age of 13. This initial catalyst has sparked a lifetime of running, coaching, and the ability to deal with adversity. David has an amazing ability of coaching civilians into championship gunners in just about all the places he's worked at. This includes his now wife, Janice Alley, a clinical psychologist who won her age group during her first half marathon race and continues to race competitively today. In today's episode, we talk about David's childhood and how it sowed the seeds for his current narrative. We talk about success as it relates to running and mentorship. And we talk corporate talk and explore how David has helped some of the world's biggest corporations shape their own narratives. And now, without any further ado, I give you David Mays. David, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Well, thanks for the invitation, Kevin, of course. Appreciate it. So I'd like to shut off um, in the beginning and talk about um, a little bit about your childhood. And if you could describe to us what that was like and what you thought you would be doing when you were little. <laughs> My, my childhood um, was, was kind of wild. Uh, my mother had me at a very early age. She was uh, 20 years old. She had uh, completed a couple of years of college. And uh, so as she spent her next two years completing her four-year degree, which I was so proud that she did, um, I spent those two years almost exclusively with my maternal grandparents uh, in Charlotte, North Carolina. And that was an amazing experience. I became very, very close to them. He had just retired as um, an owner of a paper company um, that he'd started with some friends from college. And he retired and became a gardener. He had the most amazing garden, about an acre's worth, in his backyard in the largest city in North Carolina. And so I, I tagged around with him through the garden and learned about... Uh, he was doing organic gardening before organic was even a term. He, did, he used no pesticides. Um, he owned his own beehives to pollinate the garden. And I, I became just, um, and he was mostly a vegetarian before vegetarianism was even talked about in this country. He just, really was ahead of the times. Just because he preferred fresh fruits and vegetables. And I just, the time that I spent with them was absolutely magical. And the same with my grandmother, who was also a gardener of flowers. And uh, so I grew up with, with them for uh, the first you know, few years of my life and became very, very close to them. Um, the rest of my childhood was also interesting. My father decided to leave his professional uh, corporate gig and become a Methodist minister, which uh, pays absolutely nothing uh, still to this day. 
And for brand new Methodist ministers, what happens is you bounce around to various small cities in the state where you live. And so we would move every couple of years from uh, small town to small town to small town. Um, And in one of those small towns, something also magical happened. I I saw a couple of men uh, who were literally running around our block again and again and again. And I jumped in behind them and asked what they were doing. And they said, we're training for a marathon. And I said, what's, what's a marathon? And they kind of laughed at me. And I said, can I train with you guys? And they, they laughed at me some more. Um, but as they saw that I was actually serious about this, they kind of took me under their wings as a, as a surrogate uh, son in many ways. And uh, that began a, ser- a series of mentors who came into my life throughout my childhood. So, How old were you, just to help place us? So we're, we're talking about 12 years old when I met these two gentlemen. And I, I actually ran the Charlotte Observer Marathon with them uh, just after turning age 13. And so this, this was an exciting time because this was right um, at, at the running boom, right, you know, 1979, 1980. And so, you know, Bill Rogers and Frank Shorter were duking it out in races across the country. And so I, I wanted to be an Olympic runner. That was what I really wanted to do. And at age 13, I thought I could do that. That's incredible. Did they, was there an age limit or an age, um, do you have to be this old to run in a marathon? Not at that point in time, at least not at the Charlotte Observer Marathon. And um, there were a few controversial cases. There was one gentleman in particular in another state who was having his two kids, his son and daughter, who were five and six at the time, run marathons with him. And he took heavy criticism for that. Um, I was uh, probably among the youngest to run that marathon that year, and maybe that was a little too young to do it. But uh, you know, it was—I I didn't know anything different than that. And to to be running in rural North Carolina with these uh, with these two gentlemen who were so passionate about it, and then uh, to actually go out and complete this goal—that just sparked my interest in running. That would be a, a passion throughout my life. Um, ne- never, never made it to the Olympics. Um, Not yet. Ne- <laughs> never uh, came close to making it to the Olympic trials in the marathon, but uh, but not quite. But it, it's been a sport that has really. Uh, deeply affected me in many, many positive ways, and I've been able to mentor and coach others as a result of that. And so that's been kind of a constant theme throughout my life, uh, except for the past year, as I've been fighting a, really the first significant injury that I've had before in my career. But uh, I, I intend to return to non-competitive running at some point, for sure. Yeah, I think, well, first of all, like kudos on you for completing something at the age of 12 that most people would have as one of their lifetime you know, bucket items. So I was 13, actually. Oh, I was 13. But, yes. but one of my, my youngest brother was actually inspired by that. And a couple of years later, without telling anyone, signed up for the same marathon, got himself to the starting line, and he finished the thing at age 11. Just because he needed to do it before. Yeah. <laughs> I think there was a, a little bit of competitive streak, but... Um, uh, I, it was, it was, I was so proud that, that he did that um, for, for himself. I was, I was away at college at the time, so I didn't, wasn't able to be there at the finish line, and frankly, he didn't invite me. I think it was something, he's a very private person himself, and he just wanted to do something incredible for himself, and he did. Yeah, I would say that definitely counts as incredible. Did your, what did your parents say? It was like, oh, 
David, do you want to run a marathon? Sure, go for it. So let, let me back up a couple of years from when I started running with these gentlemen who became mentors. In another very, very small North Carolina town, my mom befriended a local woman who was into jazzercise. And my mom lost like 30 pounds over the course of her friendship with this person. And she became a, an absolute fitness junkie, my mom did. Um, and this was around age 10. And at the time... When I was age 10, believe it or not, I was clinically obese. And I don't believe it. It's absolutely I'll true. I'll take your word for it. And, I don't believe it. And my pediatrician at the time took my mom aside and said, this, this young man needs to lose weight now. He has borderline hypertension. I wouldn't be surprised if he has borderline diabetes. Something needs to happen. And so my mom was my first running inspiration. She had a two-and-a-half-mile course around our neighborhood, and we started walking that together uh, every night. And my reward was um, I got a 16-ounce box of jungle juice from the local 7-Eleven afterwards if I completed the loop with her, which probably negated any calories that I had burned during the course of that of that circuit. But... Um, we eventually built up over the summer to where I was running it with her, the whole thing, two and a half miles. And I, I dropped all the weight. And, um, and then we moved away from that small town to the other small town where I met the two gentlemen. And they just took my running to the next level, which was uh, competitive running, which was a theme that, that carried on from the time I was 13 through the time I was in high school and in college and then afterwards. And at what point... You know, you mentioned that you were thinking initially of trying for the Olympics. Um, at what point did your running career intersect with your current career in strategic communications? How did that come about? That, that's interesting. I think you know, running as a as a discipline has always been something that has prepared me for um, adversity for um, uh, having, always having two or three uh, option plans when things go wrong. Um, failure and the ability to overcome failure and learn from it. Um, and then also, you know, the desire and ability to mentor and coach and help others. So um, I would say the way it directly led into my career is that after I spent a couple of years at a junior college in North Carolina, in the mountains of North Carolina, Brevard College, which was a fantastic experience, uh, that, that team was chock full of runners from around the world who were literally world class. And um, th that, that, that college had won the junior college cross country championships like eight years in a row. So just to be able to train with these guys and hang with them um, was amazing. But I wanted a little bit different experience after that. I wanted to, to do something completely different. And so I picked up um, a college brochure from our library for Pacific Lutheran University, which is in Tacoma, Washington. And on the cover of that magazine was um, a photograph of Mount Rainier, which is really called Mount Tahoma, um, at sunset. And I thought, oh, wow, I want to go visit this place. And this place had um, a, a very good NAIA uh, cross-country program, a very uh, uh, talented coach, I thought. Great academics in journalism, which is what I thought I wanted to go into for sure. Um, and a national public radio affiliate on campus. And I thought I wanted to be an NPR reporter. And, and I was for the local station. And, uh, but I had to do an additional internship when I was there. And I did, I did it at the local independent television station, KTSW. 
which brought me into my broadcast career. So by choosing a cross-country, competitive cross-country program at a school that was close to this television station where I did my internship, uh, sort of brought my running into my career. And then I went on to work for uh, King 5 Television in Seattle uh, as soon as I graduated from, from college, my first real job. And they had just started a corporate um, track team, which I immediately joined and immediately became, became the captain of. So I would say that was a really interesting intersection um, between you know, my running and my start in broadcast television news. And... It was so funny. Uh, right when I started working at the station that summer, I ran the Seattle Shore Run, which I don't know if it exists anymore right now. It's a race from Seward Park to Madison Park, a weird distance, 6.7 miles, but it was just highly competitive back in the day. And um, I, I, my, the first time I ran it, I just tucked in behind the lead pack, and a, a gentleman named, um, his last name was Becker, Rick Becker had won this race multiple years in a row, and he was the perennial favorite. And what he would typically do is surge up the final hill of this race and just demoralize everybody else. And then there was about a half mile downhill right into Madison Park, finishing right on the shores of Lake Washington. And I tucked him behind him that year and just tried to be as silent as I could. And I let him just surge up that hill. And as soon as we hit the crest, he eased up just a hair. And I surged past him and continued to go down the hill without looking back. And so I was able to beat the, um, the reigning championship. But King Television was there to do a story about the race, and I was wearing my King Broadcasting uh, singlet at the race. And Public relations right there. And <laughs> You're they, doing a job. And so the, you know, they do the newscast that night, and Tony Ventrella, the longtime anchor at the station, he, he reads the story, and he says, well, wait a minute, I think that kid works for us. So that, there's another intersection of running and um, my career. When you talk about sneaking up behind the favorite um, runner, it reminds me that in ultra marathons, um, when you go, so these are distance, the official definition is anywhere over 26.2 miles, but usually you're talking about 50 miles and 100 miles. One of the strategies, because you're running into the night, is in nighttime you have headlamps to see where you're going. But if you want to be sneaky about it, you cover up your headlamp and then wait until you surge past someone and then continue covering up your headlamp because you don't want them to know how far away you are. That's awesome. I actually have to uh, attribute this trick to my middle brother who was actually living with me that summer. He was a, a freshman runner at Brown University. And his coach had taught them that technique because he said that most runners uh, competitively, the tendency is to surge up a hill, to relax at the top a little bit, and then to just glide on the downhill. And if you're able to surprise them and surge right at the top and then continue your surge into the downhill, it's unexpected in many ways. And so I've used that technique a few times in my racing career. Yeah, and never mind the fact that running fast downhill is rather terrifying. And I've been in enough trail runs to know. You can tell the people that are used to trail running versus the ones that are not because the experienced trail runners will blast away the downhills and then everyone else is just feeling like, how are they not killing themselves? Right, right, right. But, you know, I've, I've, I've really enjoyed trying to coach and inspire other runners, especially my colleagues throughout my career. And uh, one colleague in particular who was a two-pack-a-day smoker at a television station where I was working in Tampa, Florida, 
I got him to start running with me. He dropped the cigarettes. He started racing. And now he is still a very elite um, triathlon uh, uh, competitor at this point. Uh, he, he lives in Ohio and is the main anchor at the Columbia, the Columbus uh, ABC affiliate there. And I'm just I'm so proud to stay in touch with him and to hear about his running success. Uh, ditto for another of my colleagues uh, at my very first TV job who was, who was a smoker. And he has now become an extraordinarily competitive master's runner, marathon runner in Hoboken, New Jersey. And he, in fact, uh, founded um, the Hoboken um, Roadrunners Club. Is there anything that you do to get people to go into running? Because it seems like you've had a lot of success inspiring your colleagues and your friends. And I know that for people that don't run, thinking about running is like thinking about putting your legs in a grinder. Like yeah. people just don't want to do it. To, like everyone, we used to have a shirt in cross country that said, or sport is your punishment. Because whenever the soccer team or any team got you know, disciplined, they would need to run laps. So like, what is your secret? How do you get people to join running? I guess I will ask people, have you ever thought about running? Um, you, you live right next to a beautiful running trail. Uh, well, I've thought about it, but I don't know. And I've also lived in cities most of my career that have had sort of marquee races, big, big time races. And I would just ask them, well, let's, let's go for a run together sometime. And they would look at me like I'm crazy. There's no way you can run as slow as I'm going to need to run. But no, I'm happy to do that. So by actually getting out there with people and showing them that they, that they can do it and encouraging them and just being really, really present for them. I'm not just, you know, standing on the side of a track reading off splits to the people that I've, that I've coached in the past. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, pa I'm pacing them through intervals or through long runs and sometimes, you know, racing with them, run, you know, running side by side. Um, I, I did that with um, uh, another fantastic friend of mine in, in Florida when I was at the television affiliate, the ABC affiliate there, who had never run a race before in her life. And we identified a 10-mile race, and she had never run more than like five miles before. And uh, she went out at like a 6.35 pace and um, gradually slowed from that, but finished uh, at seven minutes overall, and she was just stunned that she had done it. So it's those moments that mean the most to me in my running life. It's not the victories I've had, for sure. Yeah, I think there's something about running where it's showing yourself that you can do th something that you didn't think was possible. Um, and I guess one more thing on this is that I currently have a friend who is a nationally ranked runner who is now also getting into coaching. And for people who are used to the gunning side, but not the coaching side, were there certain things that you've learned over the years that work better as a coach? I think that, again, when I'm actually running with these people and, um, you know, analyzing their stride in real time and making suggestions to them, that that's been the most meaningful thing, uh, that, well, David cares enough about my entry into the sport that he's willing to do it with me no matter what pace that we're going to run together and um, another thing whenever um, whenever I was racing I would make it a point to even if a friend of mine was not in the race to do my warm down to run run back in run against the traffic of people who were running towards the finish line and identify somebody who looked like he or she was was in trouble and latch onto that person and run the last mile or two with them and just motivate them and, you know, say positive things to them. So I think it's the, 
it's the me actually taking the time to to do the sport with them that's been my biggest takeaway and not just not just giving them paper workouts and not just timing their intervals or anything like that i think people are very lucky to have you as a coach <laughs> I, i appreciate that and i appreciate you know the the people who i'm still in touch with um including a friend of mine who is now in his 60s uh who lives in florida and still continues to race on a regular basis and who went from 185 pounds to 155 pounds and is still incredibly competitive and wins his age group almost every race that he enters. There you go. If you are thinking about starting running or losing weight, then there's somebody that you might want to talk to. <laughs> um, and getting back to your career in, in communications, you talked about how you started it off at the local news, but <clears throat> you didn't stay there. And if I look at your career, you know, you worked in oil, you worked in defense, you worked in healthcare, and now you're working in one of the world's biggest, most customer-centric companies in the world. Is this pretty typical um, in your line of work, or is this just something about you that made you seek out all these different opportunities in different industries? So starting off in television news, I um, had a very different TV news trajectory, because most people who start off in television news start off in a very, very small market. So For instance, here in Washington State, maybe you go to Yakima to start your career or, you know, the Tri-Cities to start your career and you move your way up to larger and larger markets if you're successful. And people who do choose to go into broadcast news and, and take this path, they're, they're literally finding themselves working for minimum wage in these, in these small cities as before they're moving up. I was lucky enough to get my very first um, job in market number 12, which is Seattle, and spent the first six years of my career there. So that's, that's an eternity in broadcast news. Maybe not in Seattle, which is considered a destination market. Many people you know, spend their entire careers here, like uh, Jean Anderson, the first um, woman to anchor a major newscast in the entire country, period. She spent her entire career at, at King Television. Uh, one of my friends, uh, Mimi Zhang, has been at the station for 18 years now. That's, that's a long period of time. Um, but, uh, you know, I keep talking about mentors that I've had in my life. And that's why I made the first move from um, Seattle to Tampa, is a news director mentor who was starting a brand new station in Florida and said, I need your help. And so... You know, I knew nothing about the state. I didn't have any friends there, but I trusted my mentor. And so I took a leap of faith. And I took another leap of faith when I was recruited to join the ABC affiliate in Washington, D.C. So, no, it's not atypical to move from station to station to station um, and from market to market across the country. Um, going from television news to corporate communications, that's, not, that's also not atypical. Um, I, I see more and more people do it. Um, as local, especially as local television news and even network television news has become uh, less and less user-friendly for those who work there. Uh, wages comparably have never been lower uh, in broadcast television and um, the, the resources have never been scarcer. So if you're a reporter, even in a major market like Seattle, you're also expected to shoot your own stories, to often edit your own pieces, um, and then even engineer your own live shots. Uh, so 
to get a, a break into corporate communications. What, one interesting thing about my career tra- trajectory is that none of this was uh, strategically planned. It was just opportunities that arose as a result of relationships that I had with people. So, for instance, um, when I went from um, broadcast, commercial broadcast television to building um, a 24-hour news channel for the Pentagon Channel, it was someone I had known in broadcast news who said, I have this great opportunity, would you come join me? And when I was recruited away from there to Chevron Corporation, it was someone with whom I'd worked in broadcast news in the past who had been laid off in San Francisco and started uh, working for this, um, the second largest integrated energy company in the United States and offered me an opportunity, something I was not seeking, something that didn't interest me, but something I became very passionate about once I arrived. Same thing, uh, well, Kaiser Permanente, the healthcare, a little bit of a different story. Um, I was listening to their CEO tell the story of uh, his philosophy of preventing chronic conditions. 80% of the $3 trillion that we spend in the United States every year goes to treat chronic conditions, almost all of which are either preventable, curable, um, or at least mitigated by healthy eating and active living. Uh, when I heard him saying these absolutely um, stunning things that really resonated with me, this is the first job I ever actually sought. I wrote the guy a letter and said, I've been, I heard an interview with you on Marketplace Radio, so here's the power of radio, the power of podcasts for you, Kevin. Uh, I heard this interview on Marketplace Radio. It blew my mind. If you ever have need for a communications person, I'd love to talk with you. And the next week, I'm in his office talking with him. And he had just he had chewed through six communications directors in the previous two years. He had a reputation of someone who was impossible to work for. His name's George Halverson. He is a he's a legend uh, in the healthcare industry, and he's still working on on other opportunities almost full time, including book writing right now. But we took an immediate um, liking to each other, and I spent the next several years of his career leading the the, the world's largest uh, integrated healthcare company as his chief communications officer. And uh, again, there, there's been a mentor who is still stuck with me um, throughout my career. And then when Amazon picked up the phone and said... Um, we have an opportunity that we think you would be perfect for, um, but we can't tell you anything about it. Would you fly up here and interview with us? <laughs> Another leap of faith. And so I, I, I took it, and um, I've been here for almost, almost two years. So hardly any of this was strategic. There was a bit of luck. There was a lot of relationship building, and then there was a lot of leap of faith that uh, luckily in almost every uh, leap that I've made has been a good one, and I've landed uh, softer and stronger. I think that there was a lot more than just luck, and that there was a lot of, um, like, one thing that I'm gathering from all this is that a lot of the relationships that you've had and places that you worked were with people that when they needed someone to do the job that you're doing, thought of you. And so you were the sort of person that people would go to to fill these sorts of opportunities. And the second thing is, I think, it's for an opportunity to work out, it takes two sides. It takes one side to offer it, but the other side to accept it. And you've mentioned how in your career you've made multiple leaps of faith and have landed successfully on the other end. What do you think made it okay for you to make that leap. I think that, you know, changing careers, changing different industries, moving to different places, that's all stuff that 
can be really terrifying and really hard for people. But you've been able to successfully navigate that, not just once, not just twice, but many, many times. And what do you think is behind that? Like, what drives that? So, so I've always had to be very, very um, self-sufficient. Uh, but from the, from the very beginning, my grandparents instilled me with a belief that you can do anything that you set your mind to. You, you can do anything. And um, I, I've, I've carried their thoughts uh, with me. They're, they're both gone now. Um, grandmother died at 97, and then my grandfather made it a few months later to his 100th birthday, and mm. then almost right afterwards decided that if he, he died in his sleep, it couldn't have been you know, more, I don't want to say perfect, but um, it was just beautiful, the way, right. that, the way that they left having been married for 75 years together. But I've learned to be very, very self-sufficient, and part of that uh, was the frequent moves that my family made. Um, and you know, I, I I had to find I had to figure out things on my own. I had to m- make new friends. Um, I had to um, you know find what I could do in these just incredibly rural places that uh, were depressing in many ways. Um, but I've carried that throughout my career as well. I I I, I see I can always find something good uh, no matter where I go. And so it it I fell in love with Seattle when I first started when I first moved to college here and throughout my career at King Television. And when my mentor asked me to come to Florida with him, that was one of the hardest decisions I've had to make because I just I, I love the Pacific Northwest. I've climbed Mount Rainier. I've summited Mount Rainier. I love the, the, the trails here, whether when I was able to run them and now that I'm able to walk them. Um, but and, and had no interest in Florida whatsoever. But when I moved to Florida, I found a group of people who I, I ended up truly caring about. I um, threw myself into the sport of skydiving, which I had begun about a year earlier in Skydive Snohomish. Uh, which I, I just recently revisited um, uh, earlier this summer and plan to jump there uh, as the weather is still nice here, as well as uh, skydive Kapausen and Shelton. But, um, you know, got to, found myself in a skydiving community in Florida, found myself in a running community in Florida, uh, became a tandem instructor uh, for student skydivers when I was there. And uh, and then the same thing with DC. I I found the the group of people, the DC Roadrunners, that I, I loved hanging out with. I found a drop zone that I loved there, and uh, and bonded with the skydivers there. So I, I always know wherever I go, I'm going to um, I'm going to find things that I enjoy doing and meet people who are like me or even not like me, but uh, who I have lots in common with. Um, moving back to Seattle. Uh, now, after you know more than twenty years after starting my career here, um, most of my friends don 't live here anymore from before. Um, things have, have changed a lot here, but i 've found things that I enjoy to do and um, and continue I, I think I just my grandparents instilled this um, confidence and resilience that um, I d- deploy wherever I am if um, when talking to people at cocktail parties or running groups and you had to describe what it is that you do how do you go about that you mean uh professionally yes okay so um i'm very vague because uh, as you know uh, i'm a, a, a pr leader who supports a number of strategic initiatives within the organization that are very very confidential at this time this is amazon this is amazon yeah and so what I say is, uh, 
I'm, I'm really good at deflecting. Um, so I'll say, oh, I work for a little tech company. You may have heard of them, uh, Amazon. What do you do? I immediately turn the tables. And that's very effective because people love to talk about themselves. And if you ask them, I don't mean to be vain here talking with you, but people, I don't really like talking about myself, but people I encounter at cocktail parties, they definitely do. And so that, that's a... Uh, I, def- I, I deflect them like that. And I've actually taught that to other people on the teams I support who need to keep their jobs very much on the lowdown. And I've seen them do it in person at conferences that we've attended. So that's, that's how I handle that. I think uh, I th- there was a study somewhere where they um, measured people's... Um, so chemicals released in their brain when they're talking about themselves and they compared it to sex. And it's... <laughs> Equal, if not greater, when you're talking about yourself. So I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure that would not be the case for myself. I'm, I'm pretty sure that I, I would not... Um, that ranking wouldn't work for me. It's not universal, but it is, um, it is something that seems to hold true for a majority of people. Right. Except when it comes to public speaking. That tends to be one of the biggest fears that people have. In fact, there was a study of um, of Marines a few years back, uh, and the, the the question was, what what do you fear the most? And on the rank of that, at the very top of the list was public speaking, and at the very bottom of the list was combat. Marines would feel more comfortable and less frightened in combat under fire than they would speaking in front of an audience, which which is why you know, and a lot of people don't realize this. The suicide rate in the U.S. military, which um, unfortunately is still standing at 20 per day right now, the highest profession that has the most suicides per capita are that of recruiters. I did not know that. Yeah, it's it's an, it's an it's a, the, one of the highest stress jobs within the U.S. military. Um, and when you're saying recruiters, these are people that are recruiting people to others to join the Army. That's right. The Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, Coast Guard. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Do people know or hypothesize why? Is it because of guilt? Is it because of just managing people, talking to loved ones? or? I, I think it's very emotional when you go through the process of recruiting a young man or a young woman into the U.S. military because, yes, you do have to spend time with their parents and you have to you know make the the most assurances that you can uh, about yes we're going to do everything we can to take care of your son or daughter and um and and some of these individuals you know don't survive their service and i think there's a there is a, a degree of guilt in that and i think it's just um it's very difficult to convince someone who is not already and so many Americans are just unfit for the military right now just because they can't pass the physical fitness tests. I mean, only about 25% of uh, the men and women in this country between ages 18 and 24 can actually pass the, the PT tests to even enter to be considered for the military. So trying to find that 25% uh, and then having a quota that you have to meet, uh, those, those are very stressful. And um, yeah, when I was working at the Pentagon Channel as their creative services director and their marketing director, uh, all of our on-air journalists were active duty military enlisted people. And I, I really enjoyed the opportunity of mentoring them and helping them become better journalists uh, but the, the one assignment that everybody told me they hoped they never got was that of recruiter. 
And mm. only one of the people I mentored became a recruiter, and he was actually very successful and um, is just getting ready to retire from the Marine Corps. Yeah, that is not an easy job. Something I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, having worked in the military uh, on the defense side. As a, as a civilian. As a civilian. Um, is, well, in talking about military in this country, I think you have a lot of emotions and a lot of different viewpoints. And so one of the hot button issues is, well, Edward Snowden and, the, and, and the, Chelsea Manning and Chelsea Manning and the leaks and release of classified information on one side, you have it painted as a patriotic act because you're revealing, um, information that's been kept from the public that shows government overreach on the other side. You also have the points of, this is threatening national security and undermining America in, at home and abroad. And I'm just curious what your thoughts on that are. Hmm. Well, you know, I had never got into, in, into the politics of it at all when I worked at the Pentagon Channel. So I, I worked um, there for two secretaries of defense, uh, Rumsfeld initially, and then also Bob Gates after, after Rumsfeld left. But my, my sole focus was to bring uh, crucial news and information to our service members, no matter where they were, here in the United States or deployed overseas at 177 countries where we operate. Um, most people don't even know that we're in that many countries right now. My, my task was to provide them the best news and information that I possibly could, especially about their earned rights and benefits, so they, they knew to take full advantage of that, um, where they can turn to help when they need help. Um, and so I didn't really get into the politics of it at all. And um, I was able to actually compartmentalize that, and I, my role was very apolitical. I, I, my job was to provide our service members with as much information as we possibly could. Uh, and, you know, to, to that um, effect, for instance, when uh, anybody from the military was testifying before Congress, whether it was uh, in, in uniform or one of our civilian leaders was testifying before Congress, we, the Pentagon Channel, would cover that testimony gavel to gavel, no matter how tough the questions that they were getting asked, and no matter how uncomfortable it was. And we re would repeat that um, hearing so that service members around the, country, around the country and around the world could see it in time zones that worked for them. We wanted them to see and hear exactly what their leaders were saying and how they were responding to these really hot questions that they were getting from lawmakers. Um, so I just... I'm conflicted. I don't. I can't really answer the question that you initially asked me. But my my motivation to start the Pentagon Channel and to to build the team there, uh, and, and to to mentor um, military journalists was to really help our soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines and Coasties make the most of their service and understand that um, even though it's not obvious a lot of times that so many people in America support them and care about them, no matter their politics. Yeah. Um, it's not black and white. Um, it's hard, to, and it is incredibly hard to navigate. Yeah, um, I it, just, I, you know, I want, I want our service members to um, be as safe as possible and to absolutely make the most of the benefits they have coming to them from their service. Uh, for instance, taking advantage of a complimentary college education through the GI Bill, or making sure that they're taking full advantage of their medical benefits and. Um, you know, for, 
it's interesting. A lot of uh, people. One of the sayings that we have in Washington D.C. is that um, the biggest doves uh, work inside the Pentagon. So it's the military leaders who want to keep their um, sons and daughters out of harm's way, and the people who tend to be the biggest hawks uh, work on Capitol Hill, hmm. and sometimes in the White House. Right. Well, I think one thing we can all agree on is that we want all our service members to be safe and have everything available to them that they need. Um, when you, after the Pentagon and when you were working at Kaiser, um, you were working briefing the CEO and forming the narrative around a lot of what Kaiser did. I'm curious about what that was like and at a high level, like what was your role and what were some of the problems or projects that you undertook while you were there? So my, my goal, uh, when, when I walked in to support our chairman and CEO, uh, I, I realized that there was not a very, um, there, there was no strategy about where he would go to speak or what he would write about. And so I completely revamped that and, and, um, and said, George, we need to put you in front of audiences where we have the best chance of um, forming relationships that will potentially lead to new customers and new members for Kaiser Permanente. Um, it's, it's, he was going to the same events year after year where everybody in the audience was already our advocate and already our fan. And um, it's okay to do a few of those, sure. Um, but we, we really need to be strategic about how we share the message of this organization with customers that are not customers yet, make sure that the customers we have feel good about choosing to offer Kaiser Permanente to their employees, and then um, make the case to the broader public market that even though the premiums may be higher than other insurance options, you're going to get far better care and coverage and a much more holistic uh, team-based approach that will lead to better health and ultimately lower costs for you and your family. So I was very, I was lucky that I was able to to really build trust with this gentleman and be his thought partner to lead to those strategic decisions that we would make together. Um, one of the things I brought to my work was always being extremely prepared, if not over prepared. So if I had um, a, a proposition for him. I would walk in with my preferred proposition and present it to him, and he would say, I don't like that. And then I would pull out the second one that I had, and sometimes he would say, wow, I wasn't expecting that. Sometimes he would say, I don't like that one either. And then I'd pull out the third. And so I always you know, had backups, um, and I was overprepared, even just for our one-on-one -on -one meetings. So, And I think that's one of the reasons that we got along so well and that we lasted for the rest of his career is that we we built trust both ways with each other and he knew that I was listening to him and if I didn't have the answer to something I didn't try to pretend like I did I didn't try to make something up I would be quite honest I don't I don't know I, I don't understand I don't know but I'll come back with you I'll get that I think that was um, that was key to our success as an organization, and you know during the course of the time that we worked together, we grew our membership from seven to eleven million members, and our annual revenue from thirty to sixty billion dollars, and that's only increased uh, over the years. They have twelve million members now, and I think just reported seventy-five billion dollars of of revenue. 
Um, so that, that's what I, what I brought to the table, and that's what I continue to bring to the table in my current role, even though a lot of it is, uh, is very, very confidential. But um, we're, we're still, we have relationships that we're building behind the scenes, and uh, um, soon, I hope, in the coming months, we'll be able to be more public about what we're working on and, um, and be even more strategic about our communication of that in the goal of um, the very first leadership principle at Amazon, which is customer obsession. We'll go to uh, meet new customers and let them know the value proposition of what they can build with Amazon. And I'm sure that that will give you no end of work and <laughs> additional propositions to you. No, that, that's absolutely true. Uh, but, but you know, my, my very first job on the, the assignment desk at King Television, that still remains the hardest job I've ever had and the most stressful job I, I've ever had. And I think doing that right out of college, and you know, that became my base level of this is what stress and chaos looks like at work. I think that served me really well because uh, I, I'm able to, to, to draw back on the lessons of running an assignment desk when I've had a reporter out working on an investigative story all day long and I have to break them off of that at four in the afternoon because there's a warehouse explosion and I need you off the top of the five o'clock newscast to give me a live shot from the scene. You know, making those decisions and having people be really angry at you because of the decisions you're making, but standing behind your convictions and, um, you know, after the fact, debriefing with them about why I made this decision and why you were the person I needed to be um, in, in that live shot off the top of the five o'clock newscast. That's served me well in every position that I've had uh, to be able to make decisions, some of which are hard, some of which are unpopular. Um, and, you know, some of which were wrong, um, admittedly, and then learning from my mistakes and hopefully not making the same mistake twice. Decision making is something that um, it's one of the hardest things to do, especially under pressure, especially time constrained. What do you, what heuristics or systems do you use to make decisions? Just, just the one you were talking about where, oh, okay we're going to totally change your plans right now because this new thing just happened. Mm -hmm. I, I think that you have to um, gather as much data as you can very, very quickly um, and uh, sift through, if there are any anecdotes, sift through those as well and um, you have to make a, a decision very, very quickly. Or sometimes you have the, um, the luxury of not having to make a decision very, very quickly. And to, to know that, to, to, say to, to, to be able to tell yourself, I don't have to decide this um, by the end of this day or by the end of this week. Um, and then also the ability to change your mind over time. That's one thing that our CEO has said repeatedly, that he respects people who change their mind. It's okay to change your mind. And he, he says, uh, Jeff Bezos, he says, sometimes you receive new information and you have to change your mind about a decision you would plan to make. Sometimes you don't receive information, but time goes by and you arrive at a new decision. Don't be afraid to make that decision. Yeah, it seems in the world that we live in where information is constantly coming at this insane clip that at some point um, that you never ever change your mind about anything just seems absurd. Exactly. But I think also, you know, being very, very prepared and having backup plans really helps in decision making. 
And, you know, I think, um, I think skydiving has taught me that. So I go through, every time I'm at the drop zone, I go through the same set of procedures. I inspect my gear before I put it on. I put the gear on. Um, I make sure all my handles are in place. My deployment handle, my cutaway handle, my reserve handle are in place. And I, I check them again once we're in the airplane. And then I check them again right before we exit the aircraft. And, you know, once we're in free fall and we do our formations, and then we break off from each other and deploy. Um, I have to look up at the parachute that is deploying, my main parachute, and decide, does that look right or do I need to get rid of it and use my reserve? And so having a backup plan and going through procedures and then deciding uh, in a very, very short period of time to, to make a decision. I mean, my, my decision in skydiving about am I going to get rid of that main parachute, I have to make by 1,600 feet. And at 1,600 feet, you're about um, three seconds from impact. Yep. So high pressure, uh, not a lot of time. That sounds perfect for you, David. No wonder you're doing skydiving. <laughs> but, but believe it or not, that, that's, um, that's brought something to my professional career as well. I believe it. When, after a decision has been made that this is going to be a narrative going forward, how does it get translated into policy? Um, how do you institutionalize it, make sure that you know, this is a script that everyone goes by? And how did you do it in the, in the past or now? Uh, I, th- I think it um, has to do a lot with relationship building. Uh, I, a lot of the things that I would write for George Halverson at Kaiser Permanente needed to be vetted by many, many different people, by um, our, our, our IT department, our, our IT executives, our uh, clinicians, you know, physicians, researchers, um, people in health and safety, um, people um, who were part of our government relations uh, unit. Um, so building those relationships and making sure that people know that I value their feedback and opinion. And that's true when I'm crafting narratives for Amazon as well. There are many, many stakeholders um, and you people have various opinions and sometimes those opinions um, are at odds with each other but it's making sure that everybody feels valued everybody feels that um, that uh, I want to hear from them I need to hear from them uh, and I think just building uh, coalitions and being very collaborative have uh, really assisted in in crafting these narratives but um, at, at, at some point I have to make um, an executive decision and say this is how this is my recommendation. This is, this is how I suggest that we're going to go about that. And in my role as a public relations lead, my business units aren't required to, um, to follow my advice. <laughs> um, but, but I hope my advice at least informs what they ultimately do because uh, I more than, well, not more than anyone else, but as much as anyone else want all of these initiatives to be highly su- successful. But I also have to point out um, the risks uh, versus the potential rewards. I'm very risk averse. Um, you, you know, even though when people tell me, when I tell people that and they say, but you jump out of airplanes, how is that risk aversion? I'm like, because the parachutes that I pack and, and jump are very reliable and I know how to use my emergency procedures. So that's, I, I, in many ways, I approach uh, work in that way. Yeah, you, there is risk, but you can manage it. Or if you know what it is and the medication steps that you've taken in preparation. 
That, that's right. And, and you also can't be paralyzed by fear because you, it, although sometimes the best decision is no decision at all. And when I believe that to be true, that's the counsel that I give as well. Do you have an example of like a narrative that you've advised someone to take in the past and how that translated? Um, working with George Halverson, when when I walked in the door and went through the, the, the some of the scripts that he'd used in his speeches over the years, I some of the things that he had been saying for years, just I couldn't quite put my finger on and say I believe that to be true. And so I took them back to some of our subject matter experts um, at, at Kaiser Permanente and said, George has been saying this for years. Can you give me the data that backs up what he's saying? And uh, so in, in one case, um, George was saying, we do 14 things at Kaiser Permanente to treat uh, HIV AIDS, which is why we've gotten our death rate to half the national average at Kaiser Permanente. We do 14 things that nobody else does. And so I went to the head of our um, HIV AIDS uh, research department and, and said, Dr. Morberg, uh, can you tell me the 14 things? And he said, I have no idea what you're talking about. There, there aren't 14 things. Mm. And in fact, I can't tell you a list of specific things that we do. I can give you some examples of some of the things that we do. It depends on, on the patient. So I had to go back to our CEO and say, George, this narrative is false. We, we need to, to change this. And we had one of the funniest things. I would sit across the desk from him, and when I would say something that he, no one had said to him before, if I challenged him on something, he would just look at me and just stare at me. And I swear it was for like three minutes. And I would just hold the gaze because I think that he was trying to make me look away and see what he could get me to do. But I would say, George, this is what I've learned. And so I, I, and I had to get him to change narratives on a few things that he'd said over the years that had been just not based on fact at all. That can't have been easy. No, no, de definitely it was not easy, but it strengthened our relationship. It really did. Yeah. I believe that. Speaking of relationships, I have some questions from someone that we both have a mutual relationship with. Okay. Uh, and that's okay. I realized that sounded funny. Very provocative. So this is from Anna. Uh, and she had some questions she s suggested. And one of them is during your work with the Bush administration, um, you had the nickname of Gravy. <laughs> And how that came about? So it was actually it was yeah it was it was gravy Davy and we were at this at this lunch where they were serving turkey and, and gravy and, and vegetables. We were we were eating outdoors, and um, I, I'd met him for the first time. We were doing a, a video shoot and I met him for the first time, and he said, "Somebody get some gravy for that boy. He's too skinny." Hey, that's right. Hi, your new nickname is Davy Gravy. <laughs> That's a presidential edict right there. It, it, exactly. And it, it, it drove my boss, who was a retired um, Air Force Master Sergeant, nuts because his name is Jim Langdon. And the nickname he got from Bush was just Langdon. He's like, you actually get a nickname and I just get my last name. And your nickname rhymes. That's catchy. That'll stick. <laughs> and the, the, he's the, 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 George W. was able to come up with this stuff on the fly, unlike anybody else I've seen before. He's so quick. He's so quick, and um, and, and not only quick with his uh, with with his words, but uh, back back then at the time he was a fa he was a fast runner. He actually, I don't know if you ever um, heard this, but he did he did a three mile time trial 
um, at uh, Fort McNair. They shut down the whole base, which is in Washington, D.C., and he invited a, a bunch of runners, including editors from Runner's World, um, to pace him through this race. Uh, he, wanted to, he wanted to do sub-seven-minute miles for, for three miles at mm. the age of 52. Mm. Pretty, I mean, pretty impressive. That is. And um, he, he went out a little too fast, 6.52, and uh, d- just didn't quite make it. Like 7.00-something he averaged for the three-mile race. But it was, it was interesting. It was an interesting time to, to support him. Uh, yeah, I bet. Um, he actually had a treadmill on Air Force One, and when they would fly back from uh, these extended trips to China or elsewhere, he'd get on the treadmill and he'd crank out 15 miles while they were flying. I wonder how that's different, like gunning at altitude on a moving plane. Well, and- um, on, on a moving plane, so at, at altitude, uh, even th- though pressurized, planes are pressurized, uh, commercial aircraft are pressurized, uh, the altitude in the cabin varies from four to 8,000 feet generally. So you could be running at altitude, actually. Yeah, that may be some pretty good training. But you're, you're definitely not running at 39,000 feet, even though you're flying that high. The pressure keeps it down. Right. And speaking of gunning, what, um, it's something that we talked about a lot. And I'm curious, like, what does gunning mean to you? Like, where is gunning in your life? Um, in the past, presently, has it changed over time? So pre- presently, uh, I've had a, a one-year hiatus. So I've, 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 become a, I've become a walker and a hiker now, which um, is interesting because I get to see the landscape and um, my route in a different way. When you're, when you're running, you're, just, you're flying by things. But my fiance always mentions this because she's a berry picker, and so if we go run together, she will like stop and eat berries and snack and do things. And so we've run these scouts together that I've been running for the past six years, and like I never knew they were blackberry bushes, right? Like all along it, right, right, right. For for me, it's just it's I really enjoy the process, or it enjoyed the process, and hope I get to enjoy it again of distance running. It's never really been about the races. I've had some really memorable races that I'm, 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 I'm pleased and, and proud to have run, but it's always been the process. It's always been the training that I've enjoyed the most. Um, I, to, to be out, especially in nature, to be on a soft surface, to be on a trail or, or a gravel road, um, and just you know, hearing your feet uh, crush through the, the gravel or the dirt, um, whether you're by yourself or you're with someone else. Um, conversations that I've had with other people, especially when I'm running with just one other people on, 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 a, on a road or on a trail. There's something about the experience, and maybe it's the endorphins, but I've been willing to say things far more honestly and deeper with people uh, that sometimes the words coming out of my mouth would stun me, and their responses would stun me too because of the, the honesty of it. Um, so just I, The process of distance running, it, felt, it feels like it's been a, a gift, and it's something I've had to work for to compete um, and, and, and train and you know, lead my team to, to championships when I was in college and, and high school. But it just, it's just the beauty of it. And it's something that you can, can do on your own in some of the most beautiful places. And I just, the, those are the memories that stick with me. I can remember specific you know, training runs like it was yesterday. And races, I still have some memories like it was just yesterday as well, but more so the training pieces. Yeah, the, what you said about running definitely resonates. And you've also given me an idea that I should do my next podcast as a trail gun. That would be incredible. 
Yeah. That would be incredible. Um, I will apologize people in advance for possibly sound quality and animals along the way, but I think that it, like that would be incredible. Uh, especially if you did it in a place like Green Lake, where you know you're going to have uh, all sorts of abilities and um, different backgrounds of people yeah. on the run. That that would be a great all a right. great podcast. You've given me a great inspiration. Um, I one more question, and this one is also from Anna, um, and this is about your vision for the future and what that might be. My vision for the future. Yes. I, I think that inherently I'm an optimist, uh, always. Another mentor um, throughout my adult life uh, is Warren Buffett. And he, he every time that he's, he's an ardent Democratic supporter, and he he's, makes no bones about that. That's where his political comp- contributions go. But when people ask him about how are we ever going to survive Trump and how are we going to survive the next recession? He says, look, I've been through 14 presidential uh, administrations. Seven of them have been Republican. Seven have been Democrat. And our nation has always grown stronger throughout the entire time that I've been alive. And our economy has grown stronger and life is better for people. Uh, And I'm just optimistic about the future. And I, I share that optimism and, you know, Getting to spend time with him in the past at various events has always been has always been great. But I I, I see the future in an optimistic way. Uh, yeah, yeah. For for myself and for everybody else, you know, even even with a year's worth of a, of, a, of a knee injury for me that's prohibited running, I still am optimistic about returning to running, and if not, being okay with it and and continuing on. Yeah, uh, it's hard for me to see anything hold you down for long <laughs> and you know as much as we've talked about running uh, I, I've not been all that successful really as, as a distance runner you know, I've never qualified for the Olympic trials um, I've, I've won a few races here and there I was, I was able to win the Seattle Marathon way back when which I'm, I'm proud of of course but um, it's, it's really just been an activity that has, uh, has been important to me personally and um, has contributed to, I, I think, better success in my career because it's helped motivate me. It's helped make me stronger and more resilient. And I'll keep coming back to resiliency because um, if you're if you get up into the levels that I have in my career, where you're supporting the CEO of a of a sixty billion dollar revenue company, there's a lot of pressure there to succeed and to be resilient has served me well. And I think distance running has helped teach me that. Yeah. And I mean, as far as being successful or not, I think one, you definitely don't give yourself enough credit. And I think you've had an amazing career gunning and elsewise. And I think the other part for gunning is that a lot of it is personal. Like this idea of, at least for myself, it's, you know, am I running this race against other people? In some sense, I am. But here also, I am also running against the past versions of myself. And huh. that's why, like, I love in running, we talk about PRs, you know, like your personal record, your personal best, because the idea is that you are running against the person that you used to be. And throughout that, it's you measure progress relative to you instead of other people. Um, and then as far as, like, resilience and grit, definitely, I think... 
you know, something you mentioned about having that initial job and the local news and realizing that this was a great baseline for stress and everything else would be manageable after that. I think, you know, like in the last two miles of a marathon and, you know, you're trying to make a time and everything is hurting and your muscles are just burning and you just ask, why am I doing this? And please kill me now. Like, I can use that, like, as an anchor point to most other things I do and feel like, you know, it's not so bad right now. That, that's, that, that's great. Yeah, that, that's fantastic. And I've, I've never not hit a wall in a marathon. I've, not, I've either not trained properly, but I've, every marathon that I've run, I've hit a wall and I've had to push through the wall to get to the finish line. Yeah, and that's what sometimes just makes it all the more memorable. Exactly. And I think the same is true in all aspects of life. You're going to hit a wall. You're going to hit a wall in your relationship. And I hate to tell this to a guy who's just getting married for the first time. Uh, and hopefully the only time. Let's, let's, That's the plan. Let's cross fingers and knock on wood. Um, and, and in our careers, we're going to hit a wall there too. And it's just uh, trying to figure out, okay, what's the best way? Is it, do I go over the wall? Do I go around the wall? Or do I go through it? And, or do I go under it? You've got to figure that, that out. Yeah. Well, that seems like a good point to transition. Um, we're getting close to the end of the show, and I'd like to close off with a set of closing questions I ask some of my guests. Okay. And the first one, um, it's about what is something that has recently inspired you? This could be something from your own life or something that you've seen in the world around you. Spe- speaking of, of mentoring, I have been, um, over the years, kind of at a long distance, mentoring... Um, a young woman named Roxanne Wegman. She is a captain in the United States Army and also a, a very uh, a, a very competitive distance runner and triathlete. And she suffered a very um, odd, scary uh, medical condition where um, one of the arteries in her leg isn't working right. And she has had to also stop running, um, but at, in her in her late twenties. And the surgery was not successful. And so to, to watch her battle that hardship and to, to go through these, the surgery, and she may have to have another, and, and yet still show back up at work and lead a platoon of soldiers um, who were mostly men, who mostly outweigh her some by twice, and to have you know, the calmness and the resiliency to continue to lead this group of soldiers has just been amazingly um, inspirational um, to me. And we, 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 we talk every, every week, uh, Roxanne and I do. Um, I, I first um, became acquainted with her when she was a runner at West Point and I was working for the Pentagon Channel. And I, I, wrote, um, I wrote a feature article about her that appeared in uh, Running Times Magazine. And we've just continued that relationship throughout the years. But her most recent um, overcoming adversity um, in, in a way that she doesn't have complete control and also being able to continue doing her job and, and not missing a beat uh, and yet taking care of herself as best she can. That has been amazingly inspirational for me. Yeah. She sounds really incredible and dealing with the current situations and I ways that probably I would not have dealt with quite as nicely. And then um, to, to, to make matters worse, she lost her mom in the past year as well. Mm. And so that, you know, to, to see her deal with grief 
and stress and something completely unexpected and to, to carry on and, and still inspire and lead others. Yeah. That inspires me. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that she has you. I'm glad yeah. that she's in my life. Yeah. My next question is, what is something that people might not know about you or find surprising? Um, that I, I used to play the violin. I think that's something that people don't know about me. And that's probably a good thing because I, I, th- that was something that my, my mom, that was, that was really her ambition and her goal. I never cared for it, but I, I did. I did it. I did How it for a while. How long did you stick with it? I, I think she forced me to stick with it for like uh, f- five, f- five, six years during my childhood. Um, I, 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 I absolutely hated it. Uh, I had to go to, to um, orchestra camp every summer. And in orchestra camp, uh, you get to challenge somebody uh, every day. And if you beat them in the challenge where you play a piece of music that you've not seen before, they move up a chair from you. And so in, in, in the orchestra, you know, the first chair violinist, the one at the very, at the very front row closest to the conductor, that's considered the best violinist in the orchestra. And then as you move back... There's the first row that's closest to the audience, and the last person in that row is the last person first chair. Then there's another row next to that called the second chair, and that also goes back to the end. And I was, I was not first chair when I started the orchestra camp, but I was in the first chair section, and by the end of the orchestra camp, every single year, I would be last chair, second chair, the very last chair in the second chair row of the of the orchestra and because of how humiliating it was for me and so painful it was for me I obviously showed it on my face they made a rule at orchestra camp that you can only challenge somebody once per day mm. unlike the people who would challenge me like five times in an afternoon mm. yeah I, that's that must be so bad <laughs> but I bounced back resiliency and I actually still have my violin I still have my instrument mm. well maybe one of these days I, I, don't, I don't know about that. I, yeah. I think I'm, I, I don't even know why I'm hanging on to it, but I am. Mm. I am. Um, my next question is about principles. And is there any sort of uh, principle or belief or mantra that you live by? I, I really live by uh, treat other people the way that you would like to be treated. Uh, that that's a principle that that sticks with me, which is why um, I think that uh, I, I'm a very compassionate, uh, empathetic person. I, at least I hope that I am. Um, that's one that I live by. And another is, um, uh, you know, li- living by example. I, when I mentor and teach people, I, I do so by example. And um, I. I you know, no no task is too small for me. I'm I'm willing to do uh, the the grunt work and and sh- you know demonstrate that to people, especially people who are direct reports of mine. When I have direct reports and when I'm leading a team, is to demonstrate I'm willing to do anything for this group, and I expect all of you to be willing to do anything for each other as well. Yeah, we need more kindness in this world, so I try to be very kind to everybody. I think that is definitely something that is well appreciated. Especially in today's times. Um, And now I just have one last question before I let you go. And this one's open-ended. Basically, is there anything that we didn't talk about that you would like to speak to now? You know, I I have to to say, I'm um, in 
admiration of you. I think it's it's fantastic that you're doing these interviews. I'm I'm still not sure why you selected me to do one, having listened to the ones that you've done already. But um, I I I really admire people who take uh, leaps of faith, and you definitely took a big leap when you walked away from the mothership of of Amazon, um, and so. You, and your your questions were fantastic. I just I feel like you you drew out a, a lot of information, um, and you, you drew out a lot of the things I had not thought about in a while about myself. Um, no, I would just uh, say good luck to you, um, and keep keep this going. I think this is you know spreading information and uh, uh, letting other people hear from people who would, they would not otherwise encounter in the world uh, is a very very good thing. Yeah, that's a go. And thank you for the kind words. I have a lot of good examples to emulate, if we will. Um, and in the meanwhile, thank you so much for sitting down and talking with me. I had a lot of fun. I've, it's been fun for me, too. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. Hey, everyone. This is Kevin again, which is a few more things before you go. First of all, thanks for listening. And if you want to support the show, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple or Google Play. That really helps other people find this show. Until next time, hope you have some great conversations.